You're listening to the Christian Single Moms Podcast. Hey, it's Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me today. I cannot tell you what a treat you're in for. Leslie Vernick is joining us here on the Christian Single Moms Podcast. If you have listened to any of the previous episodes about Leslie and her work, you'll know that I'm a huge fan. But if you haven't, Leslie Vernick is an incredible voice when it comes to understanding destructive and abusive relationships from a Christian perspective. Leslie's work has absolutely influenced my life and has been a big part of my own personal journey of healing. And I'm just so thrilled to bring you this interview with her today. In this episode, you're going to hear Leslie describe the difference between a disappointing relationship and a destructive relationship. Truly the difference between something that is maybe not satisfying and something that truly is abusive. She also gives us some tips when it comes to how to manage our emotions in these types of situations and how to begin the healing and recovery process. This is going to be truly transformational for you, regardless of what stage of life that you might be in, whether you had been in a destructive relationship in the past or whether you find yourself in one right now. And that's whether or not this person is a romantic partner or a family member, these types of relationship dynamics really can happen in just about any kind of relationship. And Leslie has such tremendous insight on how we can walk with God and honor God even in the midst of these really difficult circumstances. Before we launch into the interview today, I'd like to tell you about Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is Christian counseling on your time and your schedule. And what I really love about Faithful Counseling is that you can complete a survey and they can match you up with a counselor who fits your personality and your needs. And if you go right now to getfaithful.com slash single mom, you'll actually get 10% off of your first month. So check out Faithful Counseling. So I'd like to give you a little bit of background on Leslie Vernick. Leslie Vernick is a popular speaker, author, counselor, and relationship coach. She's the author of seven books, including the best-selling The Emotionally Destructive Relationship and her most recent, The Emotionally Destructive Marriage. Leslie has been a featured guest on Focus on the Family Radio, Family Life Today with Dennis Rainey, New Life Radio, and Television with Steve Arterburn and Moody Midday Connection. Leslie has spoken nationally and internationally in Cuba, Romania, Russia, the Philippines, Hungary, and Iraq. In 2013, she received the American Association of Christian Counselors Caregiver Award. Leslie's heart is to equip and empower people to grow strong and to be brave so that they can become all that God calls them to become. She's been married to Howard for over 40 years, and together they have two grown children and three grandchildren. I hope you will enjoy this interview with Leslie Vernick. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for being on with us today. I wanted to ask at the start, your work, you talk a lot about the differences between disappointing relationships and truly destructive relationships. And I wanted to ask if you could, at the very beginning here, give us an idea of the differences. Yeah, I think every relationship, at least initially, um, is kind of put on a pedestal, a romantic relationship, a, you know, new friendship, whatever. We don't really know the person very well. And so we sort of project our ideal version of who they should be on them. 
And so every relationship, even a good, healthy marriage has some disappointments. As I used to tell people who would come to me for premarital counseling, nobody gets all 52 cards in the deck. So uh, whatever it is, there's going to be some elements of that person that you're going to be disappointed with, whether they're not as um, ambitious as you wish they were, or they're not as deep in conversation and as much intellectual stimulating as you wish they were, or they're not as fun, uh, fun loving, maybe they're kind of more, you know, uh, stick in the mud and very methodical and very, you know, uh, routine. They, like, they're not as adventurous or they're not as, um, doesn't have a side of a sex drive, all those kind of things. When you find out about a person, when you live with them or you're in a relationship with them for a long time, a girlfriend even, um, I think you can see some things that, wow, you know, I'm a little disappointed. I wish this was different than it is. That's not a destructive relationship. That's just normal. Um, however, there are certain cards in a relationship that are missing that will destroy the relationship and destroy you, like honesty, integrity, faithfulness, authenticity, you know, just, uh, you know, the whole addiction kind of thing, pornography. If someone's not honest about that, or you don't know what's really going on, and those, those parts of that person aren't there, um, that relationship can become more than disappointing, it can become destructive. And so the main difference is, a disappointing relationship can become destructive if you're not handling the disappointments in a mature way. So for example, if you're disappointed that your husband isn't as ambitious as you wish he were, um, he's not going for the job promotion, he's content to be where he's at, he doesn't care if he makes a lot of money and that bothers you, um, and you become very critical and demeaning and shame him and uh, disrespect him and talk bad about him because of that, then that disappointment can lead to you becoming verbally or emotionally abusive to him. Um, and that can lead to destruction, but just the aspect of being disappointed isn't necessarily destructive. So it seems if I can kind of paraphrase something that's disappointing, there are going to be more preferential kind of things, like things that we perhaps would wish that the other person had, but that aren't necessarily deal breakers. But where the destructive relationship, these are things that are inherent character problems with this person that are causing maybe conflicts with uh, power dynamics and those sorts of things. Is that right? Yeah, they're not only inherent character problems, um, but especially the character problems of pride and unwillingness to look at oneself. Because even, you know, in a healthy relationship, you have sin and sometimes serious sin. So for example, if you have adultery or or someone struggles with an addiction, a humble person or a healthy, relatively healthy person will own that, will say, you know, yes, I messed up. I made a horrible mistake. I need to learn to get healthier. I want to get healthier. I want to change. I want to grow and will commit themselves to that process. And so the relationship itself doesn't necessarily have to deteriorate to destruction unless that person blames and refuses to admit and denies and lies and covers up and accuses and attacks. Well, then the relationship itself becomes destructive. I don't mean to say that one incident of serious physical abuse or even serious uh, deceit can't wreck a relationship. But when we're talking about a destructive relationship, we're looking at patterns. And so those patterns, those chronic patterns of character issues where someone is deceitful or um, oppressive or controlling or lacks integrity or authenticity, those character issues um, can destroy not only the relationship, but they can destroy the other person in the relationship. And so this person's using more abusive methods to manage the struggle within the relationship. And as I understand it, sometimes those can be, as you mentioned, they may be physical, but they can be emotional in nature too. And they can be awfully difficult to understand and to identify 
because it's not like a bruise or a black eye or something like that. So when it comes to emotional abuse, can you talk about maybe what are some of those overarching themes in their behavior or some, some key elements that can help us to identify it? Well, I think the biggest red flag will be that you're not an equal partner in the relationship, even as a friendship, you don't have a voice, you don't have a choice. Um, but especially in marriage, I think this gets confusing because of our biblical um, teachings about headship and submission. It's sort of like one of the questions I ask people is, so when an adult woman decides to get married, she makes that choice, but then the rest of her decision-making power is over, right? She doesn't have the ability to make a choice. She's not allowed to say no. Um, and that's ridiculous. And so I think one of the key indicators is when you're in an emotionally destructive marriage, um, you're not an equal partner. You're sort of a role. You're a sometimes an objective role. You're a sex partner. You're a maid. You're a wife. You're a slave. You're a caretaker of children. But you're not a person who has their own dreams, their own values, their own voice, their own mind. I was just talking to a woman this morning, and she has this amazing gift. She's an artist. And her husband doesn't want her to use it because I would think it threatens him and it makes him feel maybe insecure or she's going to take time away from him to use her gift. And that's destructive to her. God has given her a gift for a reason. She's to use it to glorify him. And marriage is supposed to enhance that person's ability to use their gift, not destroy it or squash it under the guise of headship. And so I think there's really wrong teaching in the church about the roles of husband and wife, the relationship between the two. And sometimes people who are destructive will misuse biblical teaching to oppress someone, especially a male to a female, because that's more biblically acceptable. If a female went in and started to oppress her husband and started to um, use power over dynamics, she would be rightly put in her place. But oftentimes men and husbands are not. They're actually encouraged. And as I understand it, our relationships really should help us to become more of the people that God made us to be, more of those individuals, rather than suppressing that person's individuality and trying to, as you said, squash it. Exactly. God has created us for relationships and he wants us to have relationships, healthy ones. But when you're in a relationship where you feel afraid, you feel confused, you feel squashed, you feel scared, you feel controlled. That's not a healthy relationship. That's a destructive one. You know, one of the most eye-opening quotes for me from the emotionally destructive marriage that you wrote is that biblically loving your husband does, doesn't require you to prop him up in order to enable him to continue to hurt you. It involves something far more redemptive. And I think when it comes to these types of situations, there are times where a man's insecurity, we're saying, man, certainly this can happen to, you know, you can have a woman who's, who is enacting power dynamics over her husband, but our audience is single moms. So <laughs> we reference it from that perspective, but ultimately that there can be insecurity that props up that a couple can work through together. And then there's insecurity that by a woman, even with her best intentions, that it can continue to play out over and over and over again and give him continued opportunities to continue to oppress her. So can you describe for us a little bit about enabling and how this is a factor in destructive relationships and how you know, even our best intentions, even the, the good things in our heart can actually cause it to happen? Yeah, here'd be a really great example because it doesn't look like a very serious issue. So this was a couple that came to me early in their marriage for counseling because 
she was very social and she loved to, you know, hang out with her girlfriends and she wanted to work part-time. She didn't have children. And he felt very threatened by that. And he didn't want her to work. He didn't want her to go out. Every time she would go out with her friends, he would be texting her 25 times. He would be asking where she is. When are you going to be home? And it become very exhausting for her. So they're in counseling about this. And obviously his insecurity is now impacting their relationship. How does she handle that as a biblical Christian wife? Well, typically the advice has been to her, well, you know, maybe you can stop doing some of that and, you know, help your husband to, you know, feel loved and feel stronger and, you know, support him and build your marriage. And, you know, you need to let some of that go for now. This is important to him that you guys spend time. He didn't say he was insecure. He said, I just want to spend time with her. We're newlyweds. He couched it all kinds of appropriate language. But really the issue was he felt very threatened by her independence and wanted her to stop that so that he didn't feel those feelings. So the traditional advice for Christian women is, yes, stop that. That's being a good wife. You need to cater to his needs to have you there, to have you attentive to all of those kind of things. But that actually feeds his control over her, that I don't have to really work on my insecurity. I can work on my insecurity by controlling her. She's not allowed to go out. She's not allowed to call people. She's not allowed to visit her friends. That's how it grows over time. It may not start that way. It starts by, I just want you home with me. But then as the more that that control and power over someone's choices grows, it becomes monstrous. And so for that couple, I said to her, well, you have a choice. You can decide to say, hey, I love you. That's why I married you. You are my man and I want to be with you a lot, but I don't want to be with you all of the time. I have girlfriends. They're important to me too. And it's really important to me, whatever's bugging you about this, that you deal with that because I'm going to still have my girlfriends, even though I'm a married woman. So she didn't say yes and allow herself to come under that, under the guise of I'm just submitting to my husband. She's saying in a godly way, I'm noticing some things about you that perhaps are going to affect our marriage. And I want you to work on them. I invite you to work on them. I'm not going to cater to them just so that you don't feel them actually feel them more so that you can work on whatever's bugging you about this so that our marriage can survive long-term. And that's the difference of not in, if you're going to be your husband's helpmate, if you're going to be the closest person to him, then to kind of lie and pretend everything is fine like the emperor's new clothes story. You know, they were the closest advisors to him. And instead of telling him the truth, you've been deceived. The tailors, you know, swindled you. You're butt naked. You don't have a beautiful costume on. You have a nothing on. Instead of telling him the truth, which would have helped him, they went along with the lie to not wound his ego. I don't think that's biblically appropriate, wise, or healthy for anybody, but especially in a marriage. And if I understand correctly, enabling is essentially allowing that person to manage their emotions outside of themselves by being able to control circumstances or control another person's behavior rather than them having to face the truth, as you're saying, and realize you have an insecurity within yourself. I will be here to support you as you work through that, but you're not going to be able to work through it through me and my behavior. Is that right? Exactly. And and here's another example. So let's say someone um, has a very entitled mindset. Right, they're not insecure. They feel like, hey, I'm married, I deserve your undivided attention all of the time. So it's not an insecurity issue, it's a demandingness entitlement issue. 
So if, and so he's disappointed or mad at her and punishes her through the silent treatment or, you know, verbal critique or, uh, you know, physical abuse, whatever. Is it her job to enable that entitlement mindset by submitting to it? Or is it her job as an adult helpmate to her husband to say, look, I know it's frustrating to you when I'm not available to you 100% of the time, but that's reality. I've got kids to attend to. I've got my own needs to attend to. I can't revolve myself around you and your feelings and your needs 100% of the time. And how you manage that disappointment is abusive because his disappointment is saying to himself, I'm allowed to abuse you because you disappointed me versus hey, there's a bunch of disappointment in marriage and I have to learn to deal with that in a godly way. You've talked also about how we manage those disappointments. And sometimes even if the, uh, in in our examples, for example, if the husband is choosing an abusive route, a controlling route to manage his feelings, that oftentimes we can actually end up abusing, a woman can actually end up abusing him right back in the way that she chooses to manage the situation. Can you talk a little bit about reactive abuse and how this pattern really can actually undermine the understanding of who is being the perpetrator, who's being the target in this kind of dynamic and those sorts of things and how that affects, for example, a woman's ability to get support and help in this kind of situation? You know, this is a really important point for women. So sometimes the Bible tells us that we are not to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But the truth is, sometimes we do get overcome by evil. We get so angry, so hurt, so destroyed by someone that sometimes our own response to that can also be destructive. I remember a woman found out that her husband was watching porn and she was so angry that she you know, took his computer and she threw it against the wall. She broke many of his things. She put it on Facebook. I mean, she was reactively hurt, but instead of handling her hurt in a godly way, she reacted as abusively in some ways as other people would be abusive. And we would all call that abuse. And what happens when a woman reacts abusively back, name calls back, is deceitful back. You have an affair. I'm going to have an affair. You do this to me. I'm going to do this to you. Jesus warns us against that retaliatory tit for tat kind of action. And when we do that, and then we seek help from our people helpers, like our counselor or our pastor, what happens is they will tell us, well, he sinned, you sinned. He's abusive, you're abusive. What's the difference? It's a mutually abusive relationship, not an abusive relationship and one in which you began to lose control of yourself. And sometimes if your husband's really good at this, he will act like the victim of your abuse. And now you were victimized, but by the way you handled it, you became the villain and he became the victim. When all the church support and all the family support goes to him, poor guy, she's gone off on the deep end because of her anger, because of she's reacting and that you actually lose credibility there. And so it's very important for women to who are being abused. Obviously you feel angry. And sometimes here's another confusing nuance in all of this, Michelle, is that when we're resisting someone's control, when someone's trying to control us and we're trying to say no, and they're not listening, sometimes things do escalate a bit because if someone's trying to prevent me from leaving a room, for example, and I'm, and I'm feeling scared and I'm pushing him out of the way so I can get out of that room to get to my kids, 
and I left a scratch on his body. And he calls the police and said, I abused him when I didn't really abuse him. I was just trying to get out of there. That can be very confusing. So this is really important for women to really be careful and to get the support and the help they need to know how to handle these situations wisely so they don't actually get into either legal problems or lose their credibility of their voice with the people helpers they're seeking to get help from. So in that case, Leslie, if even, for example, if there's a listener who realizes they are in this kind of dynamic or have been in this kind of dynamic, what are some of those first steps so that they can start to respond rather than react in godly ways and ultimately achieve getting the support and the help that they really need? Well, first of all, I want everyone who's listening to understand that everybody has their limitations and there's only so much we can take sometimes. And so it's really important not to expect yourself to take everything and not react. I think the first thing is to recognize what's really going on, facing the truth and understanding she's in a really, really vulnerable position right now. And she has to be very vigilant over her self-care. You know, the Bible tells us above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And so I'm going to I'm going to be a bit graphic if it's okay with you, but I'm going to give an example that I work with my coaching clients about that really helps them get this example. Because sometimes we think, okay, I'm not going to be overcome by evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. And then I can't. (laughs) And then all the evil comes spewing out of my mouth. You know, when I just start vomiting all over my husband, because I just can't take it anymore. So this is the example. If you were sitting in a room with your husband, who's berating you, who's yelling at you or lying to you, whatever he does, that pushes your buttons, that you're ready to reactively abuse back, whatever he's doing. If you were sitting in that place or standing in that place and you knew your stomach was upset and you knew within 30 seconds you were either going to throw up or you were going to have an accident in your bowels, Mm -hmm. if you knew that, you wouldn't just stand there. You would say, I can't, I can't continue this. I got to go to the bathroom. That's what you would say. You wouldn't let yourself poop all over yourself in that moment. You wouldn't do it. You would be attentive enough to your body to know, well, I have my limits. I got to go to the bathroom. In the same way, emotionally, you've got to be attentive enough to your body to know how much you can handle before you're going over to that place and get yourself out of that situation. So your safety And your sanity have to be a priority. And you have to recognize that if you let yourself get to a place where you're too vulnerable or too uh, weak to be able to handle a situation, then you might do something you later regret because we're all humans. We would all get to that place if we're not able to finally get some control. And so you don't want to let yourself get to that place. And that's really important because sometimes, and this may get a little complicated, but sometimes an abuser, an emotional abuser's strategy is more covert. And their very desire is to get you to look bad, especially in front of your children, to get you to look like the abuser, to get you to look like the sinner, to get you to look like you're the one who's ruining the family. And if you let yourself get to that place, he is going to have more power to alienate your children from you. And that can be very disastrous. Now, we've talked in previous episodes on the podcast about the difference between that covert and overt abuse. And I wonder if you would just 
highlight that a little bit. You mentioned the difference between, you know, for example, like if you're being berated and yelled at, and those are certainly very overt. Can you describe that more covert type of abusive experience? Yeah. So both overt and covert are aggressive. So we want, don't want to think of it as passive aggressive. It's not that. Both of them are aggressive, but the overt one is more obvious. So anybody watching what was happening would see that he is being harsh, belittling, um, controlling. They would see the aggression and they wouldn't, they might not say it's abusive, but they would see it's aggressive, right? Verbally. A more covert one is that he's much more interested in He's just as interested in control, but he's more interested in his image of how he's appearing to other people. And so he will do it in much more sideways ways. One way would be by questioning your judgment. So are you sure you want to eat that? Are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to wear that? Kind of making you look back and say, Why? what's wrong? What, 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 what doesn't look good about this dress? I, th- I thought it was the best dress I have. And so you start to, he starts to undermine your confidence or maybe he talks bad about you to the kids in subtle ways, like, you know, I know mom, you know, wants you to do your homework. Mom's a little wound up tight. Those kind of things. Like, you know, mom isn't any fun. I know it's hard. You know, it's hard to obey mom, but you need to obey her because if you don't, you know what happens. Those kind of things where mom starts to get undermined with the kids or starts to question your, um, your sanity. Like, no, we didn't have that conversation. I don't know what you're talking about. I never said that. And you're like, what? I feel like I'm going to pull my hair out. And so this is really important when, when you feel like you're in a gaslighting or confusing situation a lot in these conversations, go write it down in your journal, not necessarily to show anybody else, but just to go back and say, no, we did talk about this. There's the date. Here's what I said, even if it's only for your benefit. So you don't start feeling like you're losing your mind. Mm-hmm. That crazy making type of experience. Yes. So one of the things that you mentioned there then is being aware of your emotions enough to say, I'm getting ratcheted. I got to get out of here, like to literally physically leave the room. Mm -hmm. And so as it, as it goes on, so as you become emotionally aware and you're able to remove yourself when you need to, how is it that in our mindset, we might need to shift so that we are able to start to manage the emotions once maybe we've left that situation or even while we're standing in front of that person, what, what kind of shift in our mind might help us to also manage those types of um, experiences? I, I think there's two shifts. One is a healthy conversation with this person is impossible because I think we keep thinking, well, if only I find the right words, if only I explain myself more. If only he understands, then he wouldn't think this way. And when you've done all that, when you've done all the explaining, you've done all the defending, no, I'm not really like that. Or you've done all the justifying. Well, this is why I did. And and there's still this crazy dance of a conversation that you never seem to make forward movement. I think there's a, a place to cry uncle and say, a healthy relationship, even a healthy conversation with this person may not be possible. And I've done my part to try to make that happen, but he doesn't really want to make that happen. In fact, it's in his best interest to keep everything off balance. So I think there's an acknowledgement of truth. You know, in Core Strength, I talk about the first step is no more pretending. I'm courageously committed to the truth. And we so, as women, want our relationships to work. 
sometimes we take the onus or the ownership of, well, I have to do something different. I have to try harder. I have to do this. I have to do that. And the truth is the only part of a relationship you can fix is your part. You cannot fix the other person's part. And so I think having that healthy acknowledgement of reality, I think a really good example of this is the Last Supper. When uh, the disciples were eating with Jesus, it said in the in the Bible that Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus couldn't have done it any better than he did it. He washed their feet. He loved them well. He fed them. He loved on them. And then Judas goes and betrays him. And Jesus couldn't make a relationship with Judas work. Jesus can love Judas, but Judas still betrayed Jesus. And I think sometimes as women, we take it on ourselves. Like if our marriage fails, there's something we're not doing right. Or if our husband refuses to repent or refuses to listen or refuses to change, somehow we didn't get through to him. Jesus didn't get through to Judas either. And so don't put that on your back. Mm -hmm. That is between that person and God, how they're choosing to to handle that relationship, just as it's between you and God, how you're choosing to handle that relationship. And you can only be responsible for your side of it. Right. But you can't. And I think this is where the church makes a, a really horrible mistake in counseling couples. First of all, let me say this. Chronic addictions, chronic adultery, chronic abuse are not marriage problems. They cause marriage problems for sure, but they're not marriage problems. They are character issues. And so doing marriage counseling will never solve those problems. You can solve the marriage problems after the character issues are addressed. But if those character issues are not addressed and repented of and changed, the marriage will keep getting broken again and again and again. And we see this over and over again. So so don't do marriage counseling. I was a marriage counselor for 40 years. It does not work with these kind of people until they do their work. And you have your own work to do as a victim of those kind of things. Your healing work, you're learning to have better boundaries, all of those kind of things. So I think it's really important for you to understand that, that you're not responsible to change him or even fix your marriage. You're responsible to be a godly woman in a godly situation. And you can even be a godly wife. Abigail was a godly wife. She had a foolish husband and a bad marriage. And so you can't make a bad marriage, a good marriage all by yourself if he's not willing to do his work. I'm going to take a quick break here to let you know about a new free resource at agapemoms.com. It's called the seven loneliness traps. It's a free guide that you can download right now. And it describes seven common traps that single moms often fall into that keep us feeling kind of lonely and maybe even helpless or hopeless. So if you download it today, you'll find out which loneliness traps that you fall into and then what the exit strategies are out of each of those traps. So head over to agapemoms.com click on the link and you'll be able to download your copy for free today. So if a woman finds herself in this situation, and as you suggested, marriage counseling is not a great situation, or let's perhaps say even a person who's listening, the marriage is actually over. What sort of steps do you recommend for a person to begin to take so that they can start to get the healing and the help that they need? I think the biggest mistake that women make, and I think it's natural and normal, is that they haven't really learned how to take ownership of their own life. In some ways, I think we, uh, and as older women, have kind of encouraged women to stay children, childlike, immature, and their dependency on men to take care of them. So I do think that there's a, a mind shift, Michelle, that has to take place that I have to be a grown up. I have to take responsibility for my thoughts, my feelings, my healing, my welfare, my safety, my children's safety. And what steps do I need to learn that I don't know on how to do that? 
That's taking ownership of my life. Instead of saying, how do I keep fixing him? You can't take ownership of his life. You can't even take full responsibility for the whole marriage because that's a a living relationship. And again, I think the mistake the church makes to women is somehow go back and forgive. Okay, well, I can forgive, but I don't know how to have a relationship with someone who continues to disrespect, lie, abuse me, and think that's okay. How do you, in a marriage, kiss someone like that? How do you feel safe with someone like that, that you can't trust? Trust and safety are the bedrock of any healthy marriage not necessarily romantic love, but at least trust and safety. And if you don't have trust and safety with someone, I don't know how you live peaceably with someone. So you live at war with someone or you live like a prisoner in a concentration camp with someone. That's not a healthy marriage at all. And so when you've decided to leave that, you have to figure out how to do life as a grown-up adult woman. And that's a big challenge for lots of women who had an idea that I'm going to be a wife and a mom and I'm going to homeschool my kids and my husband's going to take care of us financially. So I don't need to worry about that part. And now they do. Now they've got to figure out how to do life. And that becomes sometimes overwhelming for women. So for a woman in this situation, you know, coming out of it after being in a lot of fog and confusion and sort of feeling maybe rejected or just not worthy enough at this point, how do you conceptualize for a woman in that spot what not only does what god what's god's heart for her in this situation but also what is god's heart for her partner you know god's heart is always for us not against us and so i think two things that really need to change as we begin to heal from emotional abuse whether it's from our family of origin from me it was my mom or whether it's from a marriage where a husband devalued you Uh, My mother devalued me. Um, People will devalue us. Judas devalued Jesus. And so I think this is where we have some internal lies to deal with. Where, who defines me? Where does my worth come from? Does it come from human beings saying I'm worthy? Well, there were human beings who said Jesus wasn't worthy. They said he was out of his mind. He was demon possessed. So they're going to be human beings who do devalue us. And sometimes they're actually people we're married to or we live with. That doesn't make it so. And so I think this is part of our healing is, yes, it hurts for sure. It hurt Jesus too, but it doesn't make it true. And so we have to begin to identify the lies that we've believed, like I'm not worth anything if you don't love me. If my mother doesn't love me, that must mean I'm not worth anything. Well, that's not true. If a mother takes a baby and throws it in the trash, it doesn't make that baby worthless. It makes that mother mentally ill. And so I think it's important for us to understand that we need to begin to reconnect with God in a deeper, different way where he tells us, you are my valuable child. I made you for a reason. I hate what happened to you. I hate when people treat you treacherously. You are a gift. You are created for purpose and value. And to begin to live from that place instead of living, so living from a God-centered identity in a God-centered place instead of a husband-centered or marriage-centered or people-centered place where I'm bowing into what you think of me. I'm bowing into your approval. I'm bowing into your ideas of who I should be. I'm listening to God on who I am. And that can make a critical shift. And how then can she look at this person who inflicted this upon her? How, what is, how does she understand what God's heart is for that person and whether or not, you know, reconciliation is even possible in that kind of situation? Well, I think, I think the most important thing for her is to get something clear in her mind. 
Number one, she has her own work to do, and it's not his work. He's got his own work to do. And God wants her to do her own work more than just stay married and grit and bear it. So do your work. And part of your work in all of this will be, how do I forgive the unforgivable? How do I forgive this man for all the treachery he's done? Um, And I'm not saying it's the first step of the work, but it's part of the work. And forgiving someone who has done you wrong doesn't necessarily make a bit of difference in the other person who did you wrong. It didn't in my mother. I forgave her 15 years before I ever spoke to her again. And yet it did a big work in me to let go of that resentment, that bitterness, that hurt, and begin to rebuild my life. And I think that's so important for women who have been in these kind of marriages is to let go, let God do his work in your husband. And your husband's or ex-husband's heart is his responsibility to manage. And whether he's going to submit before the Lord, that's their, that's their work to do. God and him. What you can do is you can pray for him, love your enemy, do him good. What, that, what does that mean? Speak the truth to your enemy. Don't retaliate against your enemy. Pray for your enemy. It doesn't mean you have to live with your enemy or that you have to trust your enemy or that you have to kiss your enemy. It means that you recognize they're an enemy. And how do I do my work to not let my enemy harm me while still loving an enemy? And that's that's hard work sometimes. Yeah, that's such a really important distinction too, I think, to understand. I think many of us don't want to make that distinction that well, this person I was in a significant committed relationship with is now an enemy. <laughs> and oftentimes we feel some, some shame or some guilt around reclassifying our relationships that way. But I think, as you said, knowing the truth rather than being deceived is kind of the beginning where a lot of this healing begins. Absolutely. And God says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you know, I mean, in all transparency, honestly, sometimes the truth is plain old ugly. I mean, the truth that you're dying of cancer is not a pretty picture, right? But if you don't accept that truth, you're not going to be able to prepare your children. You're not going to be able to prepare yourself. If you keep living this fantasy that I don't have cancer, I'm just, I just have, you know, I'm just tired. That's not living in reality. And so healthy people live in truth and reality as hard and ugly as it is sometimes because that's the only place we can walk forward toward health and healing. You can't even deal with cancer until you first accept you have it. Who in their right mind would take chemotherapy unless they first accepted the truth that I have cancer? Right. Gosh, Leslie, you've given just so many incredible insights for these types of situations. I'm so thankful. I wanted to know if you could give us maybe just one more thing that if there's a single mom who's listening, who's maybe dealt with this situation, is continuing to deal with this situation, what is one thing that you would want her to know? A couple things. One is God sees her. You know, when Hagar was in the wilderness and she felt abandoned uh, by Sarah and Abraham, she was a surrogate for them and they treated her treacherously. And She said, when she was in that wilderness, the God who sees, sees me. And so I would love for your women to know that that God sees, and you are not a second-class citizen. You are not a throwaway person because one person threw you away. People threw Jesus away too. That didn't make it true that he was worthless. And so really understanding who you are in Christ is so important. And second, that you have purpose now and that your life isn't over. You're a mom. You can't be a dad. You can be a mom, learn to be a good one, shepherd your children, shield your children, make sure they're safe as much as you can and teach them 
good boundaries. I think it's so easy sometimes for a single mom to kind of overfunction because she feels so guilty that the family's broken up and her kids are somehow deprived of this wonderful life. And so she actually doesn't parent well because she feels like, oh, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to be like him. I don't want to. So she doesn't teach her kids responsibility and boundaries and consequences and all the normal stuff of life because she's somehow over-functioning for them out of her pity for them. And I think if she can get healthy herself and help her children to get healthy, then God is redeeming the situation for what Satan meant for evil, God will use for good and for her to get on a track of good self-care and good um, mental health care, spiritual health care, emotional health care, so that she can then help her children not to repeat this pattern in the next generation. Mm, I think that's so pivotal being able, once you see it and you heal, then you have the ability to pass that on to yeah. the next generation through your children. That's incredible. Leslie, I am so appreciative of your time today. Can you tell our listeners how they can keep up with you and connect with you and all the cool things that you're doing? Yeah, so probably I'm on YouTube. So I've got a lot of videos there on just short little topics that would be really helpful. My YouTube channel is just, I think it's just my name. I don't even know. I'm so social media is not savvy. Um, we'll find it. <laughs> yeah, I, have a, I have a website, lesliebrennick.com. That's easy enough to get to. There's a lot of free resources there. I have a blog every week that I answer someone's question. That's on the website. It's also at lesliebrennick.com forward slash blog. Um, I have a lot of Facebook lives that I do a lot of teaching on my professional Facebook page, which is again, Leslie Burnick, enriching the relationships that matter most. And so if they just sign up for my newsletter on my website, they'll get invitations to all those things when I'm doing something live and they can hang out and they can learn and they can grow. And I think one of the most important things that women need who are in the situation is to be connected with other women who are going through it. And so I have a big support group. It's international now. It's called Conquer. We only open twice a year, but for any woman who's in a destructive marriage or getting out of one, uh, it's an amazing group of godly women who want to do it the right way, but also need help and support and wisdom in how to do it. One of the things that I really enjoy about Leslie is her ability to give the truth in a very clear way in love. And I pray that you will be encouraged by something that you heard here on the podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Leslie, make sure you check out the show notes or go on to agapemoms.com and see some of the resources that we have listed there. If you have feedback or any questions about anything that you heard on the podcast today, please make sure you fill out the contact page at agapemoms.com. Send me a note. Let me know what your thoughts were on today's episode. This can be somewhat of a controversial and kind of complicated topic, but if you find yourself in the middle of a destructive relationship, I just want you to know that God loves you so very much. And knowing exactly the right thing to do is not always the most clear, but when you start taking those steps towards truth and start taking those steps in faith, I know that God will show you what the next right step to take is. As always, I'm so thankful and so appreciative that you joined me on the podcast. You can keep up with Agape Moms on social media, either Facebook or Instagram at Agape Moms or even on Pinterest. I'm looking forward to having you join me next time.